Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable high-speed internet. Today, I'm joined by Sherry Baranek, president and CEO of Clearfield, a company that designs, manufactures, and distributes fiber optic management products. Clearfield was launched a decade ago to respond to the need for products that protect fiber solutions in rural and other non-metropolitan markets. Sherry and I discuss how Clearfield is working with service providers and municipalities to deliver fiber in harder to reach areas, how the company is preparing for an increase in fiber deployments along with supply chain shortages, whether or not it's realistic to deploy fiber everywhere, and more. Sherry, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. You're very welcome. It's just a privilege to be here. Thank you. So just to start things off, can you give me some brief background on Clearfield, maybe some of your partners and and where your products are deployed? Yeah, well, I'm president of Clearfield and Clearfield is an organization that addresses the need for fiber to be protected as as it moves from the central office or the head end all the way through the network to the home or business. And, you know, what we found when we started Clearfield, you know, 10 years ago was that the kinds of fiber protection products that were being offered were designed in the dot-com kind of craze of fiber being deployed everywhere. The, um, and there wasn't anything designed for non-metropolitan markets. You know, we felt that there was an organ, there was a need in the marketplace for products that protected a solution in non-metropolitan markets, such as a rural market. You know, places, you know, often would say, you know, the products were designed for metropolitan New York, but they didn't exactly work for Paul Bunyan Telephone in Bemidji, Minnesota. So we, we looked at it and said, you know, let's find solutions that are, are scalable, that are designed to be success-based. Them and solutions that are really going to address the need that it's not just about fiber, but it's the lifestyle that fiber provides. Hmm. Got it. Can you maybe tell me a little bit more about some of those challenges that make um, what your products do, uh, that, that d- make the distinction between the types of products that can be deployed in a metropolitan area and what you all were trying to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, what we found was the products for metropolitan markets were were designed with what we would call a fixed bulkhead. And so they would be designed for 288 users and they would deploy all 288 users at once because they really thought it, it was like a build it and they will come type approach. We felt that if we moved into you know a market like rural Minnesota, rural Vermont, even in suburban markets of California, you know they were different and they needed to be designed in a in a footprint that matched the requirement. And so what we did is we designed a product called the Clearview Cassette, and the cassette is a 12-port building block. And so we were able to take that building block, use it in every part of our architecture, whether it was in the central office whether it was in the outside plant or whether it went all the way to the access network, every single solution had that same building block approach, different than our competitors who had different architectures in each place. By doing that, we could offer a custom configured solution to a small town that didn't need 288 ports. Maybe they only needed 24 ports and they started with a smaller solution but then could scale that solution up to the capacities that were required. 
We also designed solutions that were meant to be more craft sensitive. You know, we looked at the market and said, you know, our parts of the of the product of the delivering fiber to a home or business maybe represented five percent of the total cost, but labor represented eighty percent of the total cost. So we really wanted to be able to look at the solution and say, how do we change this to being first fast and easy to install as well as being operationally proficient so that you could operate that network long term different than what we were seeing in the metropolitan communities so our solutions are designed with the craft person in mind so that we could reduce the amount of labor and reduce the skill level of labor that was necessary so that deployments could move faster and more effectively Okay, got it. So it sounds like you are perfectly designed for this moment that we're living in. Um, But before uh, we get deeper into what's coming, I'd love to hear more about what this past year has been like for you and for your workforce. So how was Clearfield impacted by the pandemic and how did how did you all shift to accommodate provider needs and, and the ramp up? I mean, I think the the best way to describe the last year for everyone is it's just a blur. And, you know, and it's uh, I think it's created a, a, a situation in which people needed to be nimble. Uh, people needed to be able to make decisions quickly. And you really needed to look at what, what I've always preached, which is outcome based thinking. You know, what's the desired outcome of what we're doing? So, you know, immediately we, like everyone else, you know, needed to, you know, be able to move as many people to work from home or work from anywhere as possible. But we also had to ensure as a manufacturer that we were able to protect our manufacturing environments because as an essential service, we needed to make sure that we could get product out the door. So, you know, protecting our employees really was core. And I'm really proud to say that while we've had employees uh, who have, Uh, contacted COVID during this period. We have not had a single case, you know, in our more than 600 employees across the U.S. and Mexico where there was a transmission on site from employee to employee. So being able to really be employee first and to model the behavior that was necessary inside of our plants, I think has really allowed us to continue to, you know, to be effective. The next stage to that was really was working to, with that with our customers and to know what they needed in order to to get service you know to their customers because you know overnight uh, the speed requirements moved from businesses to residential service and you know residential service was doubling or tripling in regard to its bandwidth needs and it was moving from. Historically, you know, the, my customers would talk about the fact that 80% of their bandwidth was driven by Netflix. The, um, and that changed immediately to, you know, uh, school-based services, work-based services, and different kinds of data transmission. So the immediate need was to be able to boost the bandwidth requirements and to protect what they had. And uh, we've always maintained um, quick deployment as being core to our solutions. So we uh, have had the industry's fastest lead time in regard to from receipt of order to delivering product. And equally important uh, was being able to ship product to promise state. The, um, because in protecting their service, their customer, their employees who were deploying, you know, broadwind services in the field, they needed to get in, get out, the, um, and, be, and do their jobs effectively. 
Yeah. Yeah. A fun thing we tried uh, that we actually had, um, we had in development previously, and it actually just um, coincidentally came to market during the pandemic was we created a, a home deployment kit. And in the home deployment kit was everything that our service providers customers needed to turn up service at the home and allowed the service provider customer, the end user to actually do the in side the house deployment. And so it minimized customer contact and didn't prevent them. It'll actually enable them to move faster than what they had before. Yeah. Do you imagine that's something you'll, you'll continue to put to use going forward? Oh, very much. I mean, oh, we great. see it. Um, uh, you know, we had a new customer in the utility space and their very first order was a million dollars worth of home deployment kits. That's amazing. So um, it's resonated very strongly in the market. Got it. Okay. So um, even as the pandemic uh, hopefully ends at some point, um, there's still going to be a lot of pressure on companies like yours and service providers because we're ramping up deployment of broadband as we should be. And um at the same time, we're bracing apparently for labor shortages um, and material shortages. So I want to know your thoughts on what impact you think this will have on fiber deployment at large and how is Clearfield preparing for uh, increased demand under these conditions? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we just, you know, we designed the company to be scalable and to be able to, to grow rapidly because of the building block approach that we put in place. So the first six months of, of our fiscal year, which started in October, you know, last year we grew, I mean, even during the pandemic, we grew almost 15%. The, um, now in the second subsequent year, um, our revenues are up 40% over last year. So, you know, we, I think, are, are aligned to be able to, to deliver product to, to the customers. And we do that really by listening and trying to listen to the customers as to what they're intending to do. And we do a lot of pipeline planning to be able to have the products in place. The, that said, I think right now in the fiber deployment period, uh, I think there's a bubble that's going to come out in front of us in the next six months that is going to take you know, Clearfield and all of the providers of solutions in this space to really work collectively to address. Right now, we're seeing uh, shortages of plastic the, as well as fiber. And, you know, plastic kind of hit us by surprise. Um, and part of that is related to, you know, the slowdown last year during the pandemic when manufacturers kind of took a step back. But other parts of it are related to uh, just kind of acts of God, um, even to the point of, you know, the deep freeze last year. Um, it over the winter when it went all the way down into Texas, the refineries that produce a lot of those resins uh, that are produced for telecom grade plastics come out of that Houston market, and 40% of those facilities you know have were shut down um, because of the cold. So um, you know we're working very diligently to be able to source on a global basis, try to be able to manage our inventory. We usually have had stock, or not a stockpile of inventory, but try to be able to make sure that uh, we use our resources to make sure the supply chain keeps moving. Yeah, uh, I think service providers can help themselves by not stockpiling and taking it from someone else, you know, uh, only ordering and getting what they need and what they can deploy, but also working with um, their providers, uh, you know, companies like Clearfield and, and others to let them know what they need so we can do our pipeline planning as well. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the other thing that I think is, um, is showing up right now is, is just the challenges associated with logistics. 
Then um, we're seeing air freight coming in at you know two and three times the cost of what it was previously. Um, you know, one of the things that you uh, that you just don't think about is the fact that a lot of industrial commercial uh, freight will come on passenger planes that cross in the Atlantic and the Pacific. And with less air travel, there's been less commercial freight available, you know, from an air transportation standpoint. And then, of course, we all know about the issues associated with the, with shipping and the boats sitting, you know, in the docks and waiting to be unloaded. Uh, so that's just really created some other logistical challenges. Moving forward, I think you're right that we're going to see some labor issues um, and, and labor issues are about not from the manufacturing side, but from the deployment side. And uh, I think the uh, we designed, you know, Clearfield product for exactly that issue. Um, you know, early on, it was because we didn't feel that it was because of the cost of labor and how much labor was involved. But now it's about there's a huge demand for fiber. We need to get it out there quickly. And in order to do that, we need train a trained labor force. The, um, our solutions were designed to be as extremely craft friendly, to be very um, not um that's sensitive to disruption and also to be easy to train. Um, we also offer a program called Clearfield College um, and also offer fiber optic training on site. So we're trying to be able to really address those labor shortages by providing tools and services from Clearfield at, without cost um, that allow our products to be moved and deployed more quickly. That's great. Um, do you have any uh, numbers around that in terms of how many people you're hoping to uh, train this year? Yeah, uh, we don't keep numbers um, necessarily, um, but what we do do is ensure that every single deployment, the uh, we don't we don't deploy, we don't do our own labor, that we we um, look to others to do that, but we will go on site for every single deployment to ensure that there aren't any challenges. And we do that through a team of, of people that we call our smart guys. Um, you know, smart guys, smart guys are both male and female. Good. good. Uh, and, and, <laughs> and smart guys are individuals who have previously deployed fiber in their lives um, as innovators, as pioneers. And now they're on staff with Clearfield so they can share that knowledge with new adapters and uh, into this field so they don't have to make the same mistakes that they did. Awesome. And we find that that really that point-to-point, uh, -point, person person-to-person uh, uh, support uh, has been really instrumental in the past and I think will be increasingly needed, you know, as we move forward. Got it. Okay. I love the smart guys. Um, <laughs> so, so obviously you're in the, the fiber business, um, but I feel like every day I'm uh, listening to a different debate on, on what type of technology should be funded in this country. Um, and, uh, you know, it's either fiber first, fiber only, or tech neutral. And this is what a lot of people are debating right now. So uh, again, of course, you're, you're a fiber, <laughs> fiber company. But um, what do you think? Is it uh, realistic to deploy fiber? everywhere in, in this country? Yeah, I mean, we've always supported a standpoint that um, networks would be, would be heterogeneous. Mm -hmm. And I mean by that is that there isn't necessarily one single technology by which, you know, all um, 
that there should be you know, one coverage. We do believe there should be ubiquitous broadband available to everyone and the highest speeds available to everyone um, that can be put together. Uh, you know, I believe that fiber can be produced really for the majority, you know, of the customers in, in the country. Um, the majority of the customers in the country are, you know, have received electrical service, and not all of that was cost effective. The, um, um, you know, I mean, that goes, that dates back almost 100 years to the Rural Electrical Act of, I think, 1936. The, um, but what we found then 100 years ago when, when electricity was delivered to those sites, the um, was those sites became more economically feasible. They, they grew, they, they contributed to the economy. And so I think we really have to look at the fiber proposals in front of us from a standpoint of, you know, is it good for that subscriber? But is it also good for the economy at large and the innovation that returns from it? Now, of course, everyone today who is deploying fiber and providing broadband services needs to be at least, a, if not a for-profit business, it has to be a nonprofit that is self-generating. And so uh, I think we need to look at this as to what is the appropriate place for government funding and government support. And what is the time and place, you know, in which for for-profit businesses to be able to service that. I think that becomes the distinction. You know, for-profit business will work in a great majority of the market, but not all of it. And so fiber will first be deployed the, um, where the return on that investment makes the most sense. Them. And then as it continues to be brought further and further into the marketplace, you know, that digital divide will eventually, you know, be removed. Um, I think we need to be aggressive and move quickly, but also represent that this is probably a full decade of deployment in front of us. Mm. That's a long time for, <laughs> for people without access to the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, another hotly debated topic is whether or not the government should be funding municipal broadband. Um, And there was a debate on Capitol Hill about this last week with, uh, you know, half a panel saying, yes, that's important for communities. And the other half saying municipal broadband is uh, by and large a failure and we shouldn't be uh, funding that. What's your experience um, in in the field? Is municipal broadband the right solution for for some communities? Uh, Without question. Um, I, I think what you've seen is not that municipal broadband has failed, it's that some applications of municipal broadband have failed. The, um, you know, what we look at is if there is a municipality who already has a position of right away, who already has a position of understanding the service, the client billings, the, the association of actually running a business, municipal broadband can be extremely effective. And municipal broadband should be looked at from a standpoint of not in competition to the service provider, but when the service provider, the for-profit service provider, just simply won't step up. And that's part of this 10-year deployment uh, process that I I talked about earlier, um, is absolutely for-profit is going to put their fiber where it gets their highest return on that investment. But the municipality then can put themselves in a position and say, I'm not going to wait. I'm not going to allow my my community to be sit behind. And I think that really is an empowerment to the municipality and really an empowerment to almost a co-op based um, uh, environment. Um, I mean, a lot of that, I go back to that electrical services that were put in place 100 years ago, a lot of those are member-owned co-ops. 
the other. And these are individuals helping themselves. So it isn't just about individuals looking to the federal government for a handout. I mean, there is a place and absolutely a role for the government funding that is currently underway. And, and you know, we're certainly, some of our growth is absolutely a result of it. Um, but there is absolutely an opportunity for individuals to kind of take ownership to what they want to do and make it happen. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the last thing I want to ask you about is uh, yet another topic that <laughs> seems to be upsetting people. I've decided to get your input on all of the controversial <laughs> topics. <laughs> um, and that's the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, phase one. Um, I, what is your take on on the outcome of that? Uh, where is Clearfield involved in, in ARDOF, um, if at all? And uh, any thoughts on how the FCC should be operating these auctions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, our customers certainly are um, our existing customers as well as some of our new customers that we and clients that we are um, talking with um, have been recipients of the RDOF dollars. Currently, we haven't seen any RDOF dollars actually yet being used, but we have seen some of our customers begin deployment knowing that their RDOF funding is, is coming behind it. Um, what I think RDOF is doing is establishing energy and momentum to be able to fund areas that were not previously economically viable for fiber. Because really the definition of this was either unserved or underserved. And so these were communities and environments that were not going to get fiber anytime in the near future without the RDOF initiative. The, um, and so I think that the, the principle, the goal of RDOF is absolutely pristine and, funda- and fundamental. That said, any program is going to have administrative challenges. Um, and anything, anytime you do something of this magnitude, there are going to be challenges, there are going to be mistakes, you know, there are going to be environments where it may or may not have been correct. The, um, I think we should put our hat, you know, I've just, um, and, and I think one of the things that was just so gratifying, I guess, during this process is, you know, the country during the pandemic also was challenged with huge um, disagreements on it. It's like everything we had, right. And the dilemmas that we had in place. The one thing that the, the, the Democrats and the Republicans have agreed upon is that broadband is no longer an option. It is absolutely an economic essential. And so I commend the RDOF or the government's funding initiatives that are, that went into RDOF. And I support the government's initiatives to fund, you know, the hundred billion dollars into the infrastructure for broadband deployment, because it's not going to bring broadband to everybody, but it creates an environment more oftentimes than not, that is at, that is in the best interest of the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Sherry. I really enjoyed talking with you and I hope you'll come back. Uh, without question. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sherry Baranek, for your time. And thank you to our producer, Tian Fu, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.